Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hey, this is the Renaissance English History Podcast. I am your host, Heather Tesco. I'm your disappearing host. I've done a magic trick and I've disappeared. I bet you all wondered where I went, right? Um, well, I've gone a couple of places. We had TudorCon in there and I'm in the process of moving back to the U.S. from Spain. So there's a lot going on, um, but I wanted to start releasing episodes that are talks from TudorCon. Speaking of TudorCon, TudorCon 2021, which happened in early October, was amazing. We had such a great group of people. Um, we had new friendships. We had all kinds of great discussions, great talks. The entertainment was amazing. Um, it was just such a great weekend. And I'm gearing up to plan it all again for 2022. So you can get tickets to come to beautiful Lancaster County, Pennsylvania. September 9th through the 11th. So you can mark your calendar. TudorCon 2022, September 9th through the 11th. And um, I'll have tickets available to purchase at englandcast.com slash TudorCon 2022 here in the next couple of days. So this talk is Rachel Dixon, who is a trademark attorney, talking about trademarks during the Tudor period, which is really, really interesting. So look, the sound on this is not amazing. And I know that it's taken from the video. It's not great. Please don't send me emails telling me how bad the sound is. Like, I get that. I'm warning you right up front. Um, if that's not going to work for you, you can take a listen. If it's not going to work for you, that's fine. We're also putting the videos up. Um, we're getting some transcripts available, some of which we'll make available to everybody. Everybody who came to TudorCon definitely will get a transcript and we'll see what we make publicly available to, but you know, some of it'll be there. So if this audio isn't going to work for you, that's totally fine. Please just take a listen, see if it will. And if it's not, just turn it off and don't email me about it, please. <laughs> so um Rachel is amazing. She's uh she's passionate about trademark law and the law in general and I love to hear her take on applying it to the Tudor period. One other thing before we get into her is that 
The Tutor Planner, the 2022 Tutor Planner is also available. I have, after the Indiegogo, I have about a hundred left, a little less than that. So you can get your Tutor Planner as a Christmas gift as well at uh, tutorfair.com. You'll be able to grab one of those while supplies last, as they say. So thank you to all of you folks, you lovely people who reached out to me and asked where I was, if I disappeared. Some of you have written lovely comments on YouTube and all kinds of nice places, and I appreciate that. Um, it's been really busy with TutorCon, and like I said, we're in the process of moving back and caring for aging parents, and I've had some health stuff going on. Nothing serious, don't worry, um, but some tests and things like that. So there's been stuff happening, but I really appreciate all your good wishes, all your kind comments. And now I'm just going to turn this over to Rachel's talk. I think you're really going to like it. It's worth putting up with the subpar audio just for the content alone. Okay. And I'll be back soon. I can't tell you exactly when <laughs> with regular episodes, but in the meantime, I'm going to continue to release some of these TutorCon talks so that you can get a sense of what we experienced at TutorCon and the stuff we learned. And so you will want to come to TutorCon 2022. Again, englandcast.com slash TutorCon 2022. All right, I will turn it over to Rachel's talk now. Have a wonderful Thanksgiving if you are in the U.S. All right, I'll talk to you soon. Very much. We're very happy to welcome you back and um, take it away. Thanks. Yeah. Uh, quickly, I actually, uh, y'all may have seen this. I brought a box of books downstairs to just like, if anyone has a break and they want to flip through a book, you can do that. They are my books, so please don't take them. But I just thought it'd be a fun way to like share the book wealth with other people so we can have fun conversations about that. Um, and I, I have chronic neck pain and arthritis issues, so I do have to have this. I'll try to step out away from the notes so y'all can actually see my face as much as I can. So um, yeah, as Heather said, I am a trademark attorney by day and tutor enthusiast by night. Um, I blog at uh, racheldixon.com, mostly on English history in pop culture. So if you like Six the Musical or The Crown or anything like that, I do that, but uh, this is today, it's about trademarks. So uh, we have very formalized systems and meanings for different types of intellectual property these days, but in Tudor times, IP was much more informal and far more nebulous. And I will define them, I'm not expecting you to know what trademarks are, I promise. Um, there are so many rabbit holes I went down on this that I had to like physically restrain myself from going too far. But, uh, so it's just a review, but uh, I hope to investigate a lot of these things more in the future, and I hope you enjoy. So, um, first, so we can compare and contrast, I uh, wanted to talk about modern trademarks. So a trademark is a recognizable expression indicating the source of products and services. Most commonly, you see um, words and signs, but you can also uh, trademarks can also be product and package design, or sounds, smells, even store layouts can also serve as trademarks. Uh, they're kind of a shortcut. The idea is they're a shortcut that conveys immediate meaning to consumers about the products and services. They help you make purchasing decisions. Um, it helps you make decisions about if it's a company you want to support or not, if it's 
if the product has been good for you in the past, if you want to purchase it again. It allows standardization of goods so that you know the Coca-Cola you buy in Florida will be the same you buy in Alaska. And it's, uh, these are very efficient and they can show, studies show that even like three-year-old children can recognize a ton of trademarks, even those that do not focus their marketing at kits. So they're also useful for helping with manufacturer accountability and consumer protection. So if you have a faulty product or a dangerous product, you can get redress, the government can take action, and you can do something about it. Um, in almost every country in the world, companies can protect their trademarks with governmental registration, which isn't required, but is usually very helpful, and in the courts. So that is modern day. Oh, yeah, these symbols, you've probably seen them everywhere. A TM means you're claiming something as a trademark, and the circle R actually does mean it is a registered trademark in both the US and the UK. I have no idea about other countries. Um, but yeah, so that's modern trademarks. Early English marks, by contrast, there's a reason I put trademarks in quotation marks at the beginning, because a lot of these things aren't necessarily indicating source in the same way we would consider trademarks today. Um, design and images were commonly used to demonstrate social identification and ownership of specific property, and they were sometimes required for consumer protection, and with economic progress, they did begin to serve more of a true trademark purpose as we would see them today. Designs were super useful in a time where almost no one could read, and um, in some way, those brands were even more valuable at that time, because before industrialization, all of these goods that you bought were um, just were much more expensive relative to the income of the average consumer than they are today. So if you, if you bought a shirt and it fell apart in a month, you probably couldn't replace it if you were an average consumer in Tudor England. Like, they were very expensive. Um, unfortunately, a lot of the early consumer protection laws weren't about, like, clothing or something like that. They were more immediate concerns, like, based on food or drink. Like, something you could see of, oh my god, Bobby drank the ale and he's dead now. Um, <laughs> So those are the earliest consumer protection laws, by the way, having to do with food. We'll talk about that later. Um, but there are, of course, some very intense harms, even if that's not the case. If, it's, um, if your sword falls apart while you're in battle, that could be bad. Um, but these very real harms had very few remedies at the time. Lawsuits were very costly. Um, warranties were extremely rare. There were like almost no purchaser protection laws. Um, even if you could go to the courts, they generally were very much caveat emptor, the buyer beware. And a lot of times you couldn't even find these merchants who sold you these goods because they traveled from fair to fair. So over time it became very important for people to use marks to, like if they, if they produce quality goods and they're proud of their goods and they want their consumers, to, their customers to keep coming back to them, they start using marks. So with economic growth and advancement, we get more of that. Um, Generally, there's no formalized governmental registration of any of these things. Um, there were a few guild registrations. And um, there was the College of Arms for Heraldry, which isn't quite a trademark, but I'll discuss that a little bit more. Um, to give you an idea of what these images are, in the upper left is the mark of a bell founder, um, so something that could be easily made with like a chisel or a knife. Um, 
the upper right is the coat of arms of the Drapers Guild, which was the first um, guild in London uh, established to have like a coat of arms. Um, the lower left shows an ale steak, which I will tell you all about. It's one of my favorite things. And then the bottom right actually is a mark used by Bishop uh, Hugh Oldham of Exeter. So just uh, whet your appetite. Something you might not think of as a trademark is heraldry. Um, these combined symbols, designs, colors, and words for quick identification. Although they didn't generally serve products, if you have a coat of arms, um, you could kind of see it as a quasi-service mark because people who held coat of arms were often in charge of a large amount of land or tenants or they had responsibilities. So it could be useful for other people to recognize them from a distance and be like, oh no, the boss is coming, I need to make sure everything looks good for him, or even have some accountability if they're behaving badly, to the extent that nobles were ever held accountable for anything. Although I should note, you could get a coat of arms even if you were not a noble. They did cost money, and you did have to have a certain amount of reputation to get them, but you could obtain them. Um, I lost track of where I was, but yes. Uh, so they had a social and reputational identifier, much like modern trademarks. Um, we know, um, we have designs on, we see designs on shields and stuff going back ages, but a first um, heraldic meaning indicating that it identified a specific person dates back to the 1100s. And heraldry was first seen in um, battle, most often, like you want to know who you should whack with your sword and who you should not whack with your sword. <laughs> Um, so at that time, coat of arms were often very simple, so you could easily identify them. And over time, they became more complex as they were less used in battle. Um, I should note, what we think of as a coat of arms is technically called a heraldic achievement, and a coat of arms is one element of it. But it's such a common nomenclature that everyone just calls it that today. And the term coat of arms actually came from um, fabric covering the armor. So it was literally a coat for your arms. So these are all examples of canting arms, which are visual puns, and they're my favorite thing. Um, there will be French in here, and I'm terrible at French, so I apologize for anyone who, yeah, th there's gonna be bad French involved in here. Um, on the left is uh, Henry of Arundel's coat of arms, which features six standing swallows, which in old French are called arundels. Arundel, Arundel's. Um, the middle, y'all might recognize, it was a big deal a couple years ago. This is John Shakespeare's coat of arms, so the father of William Shakespeare. Um, it was, William probably obtained it for his dad because he had more money, and then William used it after his dad's death. Um, there's a pun in here as well. If you'll notice, the falcon is holding a spear. You might even say he is shaking it. Um, and then on the right, is a, uh, the coat of arms of William Maltravers. This one takes a little more thought. Uh, this is called a Freddy, and the idea is it makes things it, um, hard to get past, difficult to pass, apparently translates to Maltravers in French, so Maltravers. Um, also, it was kind of the Wild West for a long time. There wasn't any control over it. Um, some kings started to limit who could get a coat of arms. Um, Henry V had a proclamation in 1409 forbidding all those who hadn't borne arms at the Battle of Agincourt 
from carrying arms, except by inheritance or a grant from the crown. And then later under, under Henry VIII, he actually had officials going out around the country, and if you didn't have the right to use a coat of arms, they would stop you. Um, yeah. So this is an example of cadency, which is the systemic way to distinguish arms displayed by descendants when they have not been granted arms in their own right. This is still a system used today, and it's actually far more systemized today than these are. You can actually look up the royal family's coat of arms and see how they differ. Um, this also demonstrates use of coat of arms to demonstrate claims or lineage or history. So Edward III starts off with um, the Golden Lions, which are a very old mark associated with English royalty, which probably dated back to the 1100s. Uh, Geoffrey, Geoffrey Plantagenet, the Count of Anjou, uh, the father of Henry II, and I believe the wife, husband of Matilda, who we were talking about earlier, um, his tomb bears uh, the golden lions on his shield. So that's very old. Um, Edward started crossing in the fleur-de-lis on his coat of arms when he started claiming the throne of France. So that's kind of like a claim and a threat at the same time. Um, a similar claim and a threat with coat of arms you might be familiar with is in at least Elizabethan times, um, Mary Queen of Scots quartered uh, the English royal crown, uh, coat of arms with her own, and it was a whole thing. Um, so to give you some examples, uh, these white things across the top of the coat of arms are called labels, and then the little icons on them differentiating the different ones are called brassures. And um, I could get so much more in depth on this because heraldry is really complicated, but I just wanted to give you a quick example of how those would look for sons. Um, daughters can also have coats of arms, although I believe they're generally in a diamond when that happens, and probably didn't happen in the 1300s. Um, I did want to distinguish between coats of arms and badges real quick. Um, we're probably very familiar with badges because of the Tudor rose and that sort of thing. Um, Coats of arms are registered at the College of Arms and are only worn by the bearer. Badges are worn by retainers and supporters. And they're less controlled, you can change them over time, and plenty of people did to suit their political purposes. Um, you can think of them more like a collective membership mark, like a certified public accountant or realtor or a motorcycle club. Um, the people supporting the king or the noble or whoever's badge it was would wear it to signify their membership. Um, so to give you some examples, uh, in the middle we have the coat of arms of Henry VII, um, which again feature those lions in the fleur-de-lis. Um, and there are several badges of his as well. On the left is the Tudor rose, which combined the Lancaster rose and the York rose, which were both in use, although they were not the main badges of those families at the time. Um, so that served a great propaganda purpose for him. On the right is the portcullis badge, which uh, was his mother's, Margaret Beaufort's, um, and indicates his descent. Um, the one on the right actually features the crown in a hawthorn bush, which refers to a um, legend that after the Bottle of Bo Battle of Bosworth, the crown was pulled out of a hawthorn bush, and that's how Henry Tudor was crowned. And then on the right is a greyhound, which was also used um, by Henry VII. He also used the dragon a lot to ind indicate his Welsh background. So. 
Over time, uh, groups started to use coats of arms as well, not just individuals. Uh, these gained slightly more of a modern trademark meaning as universities started to use them to indicate the quality of their services, or guilds used them to indicate that the people as part of that guild have a certain level of experience and quality of products under them. So um, these often incorporate symbolism to refer to their history or their values. So the one on the left is King's College Cambridge coat of arms, um, given in 1441. This is the first academic coat of arms in England and possibly anywhere else. The idea behind this one, you can tell it was granted, um, it was started by a royal, because again, we see the lion and the fleur-de-lis. Um, it was started by Henry VI. And the idea was the yellow flowers on it were supposed to signify like the flowers of every kind of learning and the black field was supposed to be like stability over time. In the middle is the coat of arms of London, which predates registration of um, coat of arms. So we don't actually know how old it is, but at least 1390. Um, this features a very important symbol of England, the um, cross of St. George, uh, which um, by legend, you know, conquered the dragons. So it also features the dragons. And uh, the cross of St. George actually has been uh, seen identifying English soldiers in battles back to 1270. So that's another important mark representing England over time. Um, on the right is the uh, coat of arms of the Worshipful Company of Grocers from 1532. And they use cloves because they sold cloves. And the camel at the top was represents the camel that would bring them from a long way away. And fun trivia, a lot of companies today have coats of arms that you might not think about. Uh, if you're familiar with the supermarket chain Tesco's from England, uh, they have a coat of arms which also features cloves in this grand tradition. Fruit of the Loom has their own. Fruit of the Loom? I did not know Fruit of the Loom has their own coat of arms. That is fantastic. Well, you know, they have all their fruit. <laughs> <laughs> I'll have to look that up. Um, I'm going to take a second to drink this. Hang on. So we're moving away from heraldry now into marks which served for consumer protection purposes. I don't know if y'all knew this, but bread fraud was kind of a thing in medieval times. And it was so rampant that like bakers literally had a bad reputation. Like people didn't like bakers in general because there were consent, there were concerns that they were cheating you on the size of the bread or the quality or the price. Um, and Heather actually did an episode in which she mentioned bread adulteration was a serious concern, which was even um, memorialized in Jack and the Beanstalk. You know, I'll grind your bones to make my bread. I don't know if there were actually human bones in bread, um, but it does indicate that sort of concern. Um, more likely uh, than bones was, you know, resins or chalk or things that you really don't want to be eating. Sawdust, yes. So. A lot of municipalities started to put in rules into place requiring bakers to mark their bread so they start, could start controlling these. And these were actually the result of national laws um, regulating price, weight, and quality of bread and ale. So back to 1267 is like the earliest a size of ale and bread to start acknowledging this problem and trying to regulate it. 
Uh, that did not require marks at the time, but as localities tried to figure out how to actually enforce it, marks became required. And this wasn't in every municipality, but we know there were at least some. This law is from 1419 in London, and it basically says, you know, they shall have the impress of his seal appearing on his bread so that you can identify them. Um, so on the left, I have, this is actually a communion bread marker. Um, I have tried so hard to find a commercial bread marker. I have looked through so many museum collections, I have not found them. Um, possible options. I may not be looking in the right place. If anyone knows about bread seals, please talk to me later. Um, there may have been an understanding that you could use a knife to like mark like something in the bread just in a more simple way. Or perhaps the commercial ones were made out of um, materials that have deteriorated over time. It's hard to tell, but that gives you an example of what they may have looked like. And uh, the punishments for bread fraud were um, intense. Uh, one example was uh, you'd get the loaf tied around your neck and then you would be drawn in a wagon to the stocks. Second offense would you were actually in the stocks and then the third offense you'd have your oven pulled down and you would be forced to leave the trade altogether. So yeah, we have a lot of records of people tried for bread fraud. Uh, as I mentioned, we also had the assizes bread also dealt with ale, which was another big concern. So this here is an ale steak. It is a literally a stick sticking out of other places. People commonly brewed ale at home and then sold the extras just to their neighbors. And you would hang up an ale steak to indicate that you were selling the ale. Um, this custom may have originated with the Romans. Uh, who would put vine leaves outside of centers of commerce that served wine, and they brought it to England when they conquered it. Uh, they don't have that many vines in England, um, at least grapevines, so these were replaced in branches and bushes. Um, over time, this custom began to be required by law in some places, with the idea that um, you needed to know who was selling ale so you could go and test it to make sure it was safe and that they were following all the laws regarding it. Um, some, some municipalities actually required specific signs. Um, like I believe in Chester, they were required to have signs that had like a hand on it. Um, but a lot of people did the ale stakes thing. And the ale testers, who sound like they have a great job, but they also had to drink the bad ale, um, would go around, make sure they were there, um, test it. Um, they had the ability to change the price because um, the price of ale was set based on its strength, so they could alter that in a lot of times. And again, if there was adulteration, that would be a big concern. Um, there were some reports of one ale Connor commenting that the ale he tested looked thick and white as if pigs had wrestled in it. <laughs> so there was probably clay in it, and yeah, gross. Um, punishments for that were often pretty intense as well, just like with the bread. Um, Someone who's, who brewed and sold bad beer often got the ducking stool um, in dirty water. Scotland also, in some places, required them to pay fines and give ale to the poor. Although I don't know if the poor wants that ale. <laughs> but this ale steak tradition turned over time into pub signs. Um, ale was generally made at home by women. Brew beer 
which I believe adds in hops for preservation purposes, um, started moving towards more towards the commercial marketplace and being made by myth. Um, and as that happened, they moved more towards signs and pubs instead of people selling it out of their homes. Um, and these pub signs often took names inspired by notable royals or people. Um, they were inspired by their location. And I will have examples, I promise. Um, but also, people sometimes had to change their pub name if politics made their previous name just a poor life choice. <laughs> um, I, I don't have any pictures of actual Tudor pub signs. I don't know if any exist. Apparently, there was a large fire at some point. Um, <laughs> but uh, this pub claims to date from 1251. It's the Old Man and the Scythe. And you can see an example of what a sign from that time may have looked like. So they're still using words, but there's a big old sign for the people that can't read and just want to come get their beer. Um, so this slide, again, these are all modern, but they give you examples of a lot of names and signs used from that time. So I had mentioned notable people names. Um, the Rising Sun was a name used for Edward III, and uh, the Rosen Crown was super popular around the time of the Tudors. Um, beforehand, people sometimes would use names like uh, the White Lion from Edward IV or the White Boar from Richard III. And once Henry Tudor came to the throne, you might want to quickly change your name from the White Boar um, to make sure that you're in favor with the king. Um, locational names um, included the Fighting Cocks, which was a name often used near like animal fighting arenas, which was very common then. Or um, the plow, near the communal plow, or um, the library was apparently pretty popular in pubs near universities, or uh, the strugglers near hangman's areas. And uh, you'd see a lot of religious marks around churches and monasteries. The cross keys apparently refers to the keys of St. Peter, so that may have been a name used then. Although, of course, then, when the Protestant Reformation came along, you might have changed your name to something more flattering to the king, like the king's head. And so there were a lot of pubs called the king's head when the Protestant Reformation happened and it became not a good idea to have like names referring to saints or things like that. Um, the cat and the fiddle is a fun one. There's a probably an urban myth referring, saying that this name came from Catherine of Aragon, Catherine la Fidele, Catherine the Faithful. Um, in reality, it was probably named after a governor of Calais, whose name was Catan Le Fidele. Um, but it's a fun story, and there are lots of cats and fiddles across London to this day. So those are the signs I have at least some examples for. Uh, we are moving to some signs I have no examples for, <laughs> unfortunately, because I don't think we have any brothels in London today with signs. But we know they were there. Um, Various Tudor Henrys tried to shut down the brothels, and they failed every time. We have records documenting the brothel names from early 1500s and from late 1500s. And as you'll see, a lot of these are similar to the pub names. Um, like, and some of them are similar. They don't really change that much over time. Um, these could be read as innuendo, but a lot of them, you know, just indicated that the Tudors didn't have a lot of imagination when it came to names. Um, lots of Henrys, lots of Edwards, lots of boar's heads, lots of crossed keys. So we got a lot of that. Um, 
And yeah, so we know that 18 to 22 licensed brothels continued throughout uh, Elizabethan England in London. Um, fun fact, at one point when Henry VIII tried to shut them down, what happened is they just moved from the one district they had all been to just scatter throughout the town. So in some ways he actually may have just like encouraged their trade further because they were now everywhere. So yeah. Um, this one's a little bit of a one-off one. This is not a consumer protection thing. It's not heraldry, but it's, it's a symbol that actually is still used today, so I wanted to talk about it. Uh, the broad arrow indicates royal ownership. It's of unknown origin. For a long time, people thought it came from one family's heraldic device, but then we found records that it was used centuries before this family ever got involved with the English military. Um, we even have records from like Samuel Pepys, the famous diarist, saying, like talking about the mark and saying no one knew where it came from. Um, it was used on receipts by Edward III's butler back in the 1330s. Um, we have a fun counterfeit trial in the 1386 where a guy commandeered ale with the uh, arrow and then was forced to stand in the pillory for impersonating an officer of the royal household. Um, bad metal was marked with the broad arrow for forfeit and was melted down and given to the ground. Um, it was found on items in the Mary Rose, um, which went down in 1545. And then it's mentioned in several letters by Thomas Gresham, who later founded the um, Royal Exchange under Elizabeth I. Um, so it was commonly used even then to mark importation of goods. And even to this day, it's used, um, it was used in colonial America to mark land, to mark trees was used in colonial India. Um, apparently in the 1800s, it was put on convicts uniforms, which is horrifying. Um, and they eventually stopped using that because they realized maybe it was a bad look to claim that the convicts were the property of the crown. Um, but it was popular enough that you actually can find like satirical cartoons from the time that if they ever portrayed a convict, it would have the broad arrow on it. And it's still seen on um, license plates on military bases in some areas today. And it's actually still, um, there's still a law saying you can't use this unless you have, you, you can't, it still counts as a criminal offense to reproduce this without authority or use it on any goods without permission. Um, uh, I did want to say, I read in one source that this was seen as a brand on horses during uh, battles in the Hundred Years' War in 1346. I could not confirm this anywhere, but it's a good time to talk about the fact that like, Branding was almost certainly used on horses and livestock throughout medieval England and Tudor times. I haven't talked about it too much because it's hard to find research supporting that, but we know it probably happened. Um, and if you haven't fenced in all your property, you have to tell your cows apart somehow. Um, but that's, that's the broad arrow. All right, we're moving into less regulated marks and more merchant source indicating marks. Um, uh, although I am starting with a little um, regulated marks. Here in the upper right are goldsmith marks from 1521. Uh, the leopard's head was used to control the use of silver and gold, and that dates back to the 1300s. Um, the design changed a little over time, but that generally meant like this, this metal is kosher. Um, the date letter indicates the date, and they were used for each different year. Um, 
And then there's a couple maker's mark uh, examples indicating the origin of source. So again, if it was a faulty item or something, you could trace it back to who made it. Um, yeah. And then on the left, we have stonemason marks, which are fascinating. Um, as you can see, these all are fairly simple, the sort of thing you could make with a chisel in stone. Um, these and the merchant marks, which I'll talk about in a second, often incorporated more ancient marking symbolism, um, commonly referred to as witch markings, which were designed to ward off evil and bring in good luck. Um, so a lot of those sort of things would be um, conjoined Vs or Ws, which apparently calls on the protection of the Virgin Mary. Um, crosses, Xs, uh, diagonal lines, if you see marks that look like butterflies, all of those are witch markings that we've seen in a lot of places. And these are not that, but you see a lot of those elements incorporated. Because if you're a stonemason building a big building, or if you're a merchant whose products are on ships for months at a time, you might want some good luck and warding off of evil mm -hmm. just to, you know, keep things going well. Um, stonemason marks are interesting. They're used in so many different ways in buildings all over England and Europe. Um, sometimes you'll see them on one stone, sometimes you'll see them on multiple. They may have been used by, um, to mark work done for payment purposes. They may have been used as a quality control. They may have been a signature. And it, may, it probably varies quite a lot regionally. Um, but you'll see them all over the place. And it's really complicated and something I want to look into more in the future. And then merchant marks uh, below, you'd see these on buildings, you'd see them on ledgers, you'll see them signed with um, contracts and stuff like that. And uh, in the bottom right, one of my favorite things I found is uh, Thomas Howell was a draper in Elizabethan times who um, bequested some money to found a school for maidens, as he called it. And to this day, there's a school for girls with his name on it, and they use his merchant mark as the logo, which I thought was cool. Um, so printer's marks. Uh, this became, um, as the you know, printing industry got underway, uh, printers started to put their marks in the front of books to indicate who made them, they indicate the source, and it also helped serve as sort of a nascent copyright measure um, to help track what's going on. Um, and over time, they got a little more complicated. So in the upper left is actually the printer's mark of William Caxton, who was thought to be the first person to introduce a printing press to England in 1476. And this is pretty simple. Um, you'll see he does have one of those indecipherable little prince-like symbols in the middle. Um, yeah. And uh, to the right is one from Robert Copeland, who was under Henry VIII. Uh, he again has one of these like merchant marks incorporated into it that we saw on the previous slide. And um, he's smart because he's got you know the badge of Henry VIII on one side and a pomegranate on the other for Catherine of Aragon. So um, we know that he was trying to kind of suck up to people there. Um, in the lower left, we get back into that fun trend of puns. 
because this is Richard Grafton's printer's mark. Uh, a ton is a barrel of wine. And if you'll note, there is a graft of a tree growing out of a barrel of wine. So graft, ton. Um, and he also, he also has a merchant mark on there. That still seems to be something. And uh, the Latin apparently has a pun in it as well. It, susipite insidum verbum, is a Bible verse that translates to receive the engrafted word. So we love those puns. Um, in the middle, we have uh, the printer mark of Thomas Woodcock. As you'll see, it's a rooster, otherwise known as a cock, standing on a pile of wood. <laughs> that is awesome. Um, his Latin, unfortunately, translates to I will sing to the Lord. It's not a pun, but it is still cool. And then in the right um, is a title page indicating like how these printer's marks would often work. Um, this is printed by Richard Field. Uh, it includes like an anchor and some Latin and leafy boughs. And all of these marks, you'll see like it indicates the printer's skill. It makes it harder to copy when you have all these intricate designs put in on them. So, and yeah. Richard Field actually printed some of Shakespeare's poems, so he was, a, he was a cool guy. And I know it says printed for William Ponsonby on the bottom, which might confuse things. He was the publisher who paid the printer to print the books. Um, like, by the end of the Elizabethan period, that was becoming more of a separated. All right. Um, oh, I totally forgot. The printer marks also often reference to the signs on the print shop, which again, I have no pictures of. Um, but they often were very simplified versions of the printer marks you'd see in the books. Um, yeah, so this is my final topic, product characteristics as quasi-trademarks. I, I mean, one big way to defend your reputation as a business was to make merchandise that was difficult to duplicate and incorporating conspicuous identifying characteristics in your products. And these were less tracing them back to individual um, companies for the most part and were more about location at this point. A great example of this is Venetian glass. Venice uh, was so protective of their glass making techniques that they started, they were the first patent laws in the world, were there. Um, they restricted their glass makers movement outside of the country so much that like, we actually have records that glass makers who went to other countries and tried to teach their techniques would sometimes have assassins sent after them. They were that intense. Um, and actually, um, a ton of the earliest English patents were for glass for Italians that came from Venice and wanted those same protections. Um, cloth dimension is a really interesting one. So because nothing was industrialized then, everything was handmade. Um, dimensions of cloth depend on the size of the equipment used in the manufacturer. So the, the looms and the tubs had to be the correct size. And it would be hard to standardize those if you're building them all individually. So it was common for cities, guilds, to require all members to make sure they had a specific amount, sorry, a specific measurement, so they could distinguish that town's cloth from other people's cloth. So we have evidence from letters from merchants requesting we want um, cloth that's 21 L's long, um, because that indicates that it's from Chester or something like that. Um, and 
a lot of municipalities actually required that any imported cloth be measured publicly before they even cut it to ensure that they knew the source. Um, and that source of that cloth often indicated like different cities made different um, types of cloth that was intended for different uses and it was just a really great way to ensure um, you knew what you were getting is just measuring the cloth. It's also a great example of conspicuous characteristics, uh, also known as Greenwich armor style. Almain is an archaic name for German. Henry VIII founded this armory by like bringing over a bunch of German armors. And as you can see, they have very distinctive decorative armor. And we've got some very good records of them because we have an album of a ton of their designs under Queen Elizabeth. Um, so on the left is armor of Henry VIII with designs by Hans Holbein. And then one over the white armor is Sir Christopher Hatton's. Um, it actually incorporates lover's knots and Tudor roses and probably was commissioned to impress Elizabeth I. Uh, the black and gold one is George Clifford's, which also includes lover's knots and Tudor's rose, Tudor roses and fleur de lis. And then on the far right is um, William Somerset's. And there's no symbolism and it's just cool. Um, but yeah, so if you wore something like this on the battlefield, people would know exactly where it came from. So in conclusion, to sort of tie it all together, trademarks grew and evolved along with England's economic and population growth. Their use expanded and they became far more indicative of source and quality of products over time. And just basically the more people needed to communicate with others about their goods and services, the more prevalent and complex those trademarks became. So I hope you enjoyed it. This is the story of the one. As head of maintenance at a concert hall, he knows the show must always go on. That's why he works behind the scenes, ensuring every light is working, the HVAC is humming, and his facility shines. With Granger's supplies and solutions for every challenge he faces, plus 24-7 customer support, his venue never misses a beat. Call quickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done.